picked and selected men of great and mighty bodies, cruel without compassion. The greatest force of the battle consisteth in them, choosing rather to die than to yield, so that when it cometh to handy blows, they are quickly slain or win the field. Hello and welcome to the Scottish Clans podcast. I'm Clint Edwards. I'll be your host again. And that description that I just read to you comes from 1600, and it comes from the Tracts Relating to Ireland from the Irish Archaeological Society, Volume 2, Dublin, 1843. That is a description of a Galaglass, or the Galaglass Warriors. That's what this episode is going to be all about. We're going to be talking about an elite group of men who would come to form some of the most prized sections of Irish fighting forces between the mid-1200s and the early 1600s. I'm glad to have you with me today. This is a subject that I'm really interested in. I've always been interested in the military history. You know, the, the podcast is about the Scottish clans, which is kind of a social concept, not not a specifically military concept, although the the society was often it was very militarized. Yet, uh, my I have my I'm 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 interested in a lot of things in history, but I tend to gravitate toward the military history, and that actually was what led to me joining the military when I was in college. I walked right out of a U.S. military history class, and there was right in front of me outside of the building I had the class in was an Apache helicopter. And then they had a recruiting desk there and they had a RLTC was represented. Anyway, I was within three weeks I was signed up. So, um, that's why that's one of the reasons I'm excited to share this with you today. Now I've, I'm telling you this about these elite part of Irish fighting forces. And so you might be thinking, well, how does that tie in with Scottish clans? Well, the Galaglass were, they showed up in Ireland. They were Scottish in origin. The The Galaglass come from the Western Highlands and the Hebrides Isles. Now, just in case you're not very familiar with Scotland, the Hebrides are the islands that are all off the west coast of Scotland. So that west coast, you have the, the Western Highlands, and then there's a coastline. That's the western edge of the highlands is a coastline. And so if you're standing on the western shore of the highlands and you're looking out to sea, you're going to see islands out there, and those are what is, are known as the Hebrides. And it's this western highland and Hebrides part of Scotland is where most of these Galaglass are coming from. So the there is some certain... Well, let me start off with the meaning of the word. The word Galaglass is a English... It's an anglicized form of a Gallic word, galoglach, or galoglich. I, I'm not really sure, you guys. You, you Gaelic speakers need to help me out here. Anyway, that, that Gallic word comes from, the, the, what, how it translates is, is young foreign warrior. Now, why, why foreign? That's the gal part in the galoglass, is, is the foreigner. Why foreign? Well, because... The ancestry, these, these Galaglass warriors were coming from clans with mixed Gallic and Scandinavian ancestry. 
and I this we see the very first mention of this term in the actually in the late 1200s. Now there's a there's a collection of essays by a gentleman named Duffy, and he makes a point in there that and the the work is called the World of the Gala Glass, by the way. He makes a an argument in there that we probably would have seen the Gala Glass even though the first mention of them, I think, is in 1290, actually a written source, they were probably operating a generation or two before that. But so, they, so they're so they hailing from these clans from the Western Highlands and Isles that are known to have a mixed Scandinavian and Gallic ancestry. This is interesting because the 1200s, when we see these this phenomenon occur of these people coming down into Ireland to fight, this the end of the Viking era, we commonly look at as, I don't know, early, mid-ten hundreds. You know, the Battle of Hastings, that was one of, 1066, that was, that's, we're looking at that as kind of wrapping up the Viking age. The Vikings are starting to convert to Christianity, which is actually having an impact on the way they operate, which, I don't know, does that mean that they were, no kidding, really converting? Like they, it was actually affecting their behavior because of what they believed? Because other Christian nations acted very Viking-like before that, <laughs> and they were Christians already. So I don't know. That's kind of an interesting subject to me. So these, so that the end of the the Viking Age we're looking at as in the ten hundreds, and still two hundred years later, the acknowledgement of the Scandinavian presence in the Isles and Western Highlands is still very real, to the point that these warriors. Are the the name that's given to them indicates that mixed their their heritage has some Scandinavian influence. In fact, if you look at the clans that come from the Western Highlands and Isles, or the far north of Scotland, you do see clans whose whose the the man the, that they're named after is it's a Scandinavian name. An example of that would be the MacLeods. Now, here's how I'm going to roll this. These I'm, this actually going to be part one of two episodes. At least two. We'll see how the second episode goes and if I need to make another one. But this episode is going to be dealing with the Galoglass generally. And then next episode, we're going to get into the actual specific kindreds who formed Galoglass groups. Because when these men came from the Western Highlands and Isles into Ireland, they were coming as in groups, in kin groups. So just like they were formed up back in Scotland, that's how they're entering Ireland. All right, so that's the name of the term that the or the, the background behind galloglass. The the historical context of what's going on here is kind of interesting. I I've read a, a few different takes on this. I'll I'll tell you what I've read. I'll tell you my sources, and then I'll I'll let you know kind of my own opinion on this. My one of my sources is West Highland Mercenaries in Ireland by Andrew McCarroll. It's an article in the journal, it's an ar- journal article in the Scottish Historical Review. Another article that I read was The Gala Glass of Tomond by Luke McInerney, and that was in the North Munster Antiquarian Journal, Volume 55 in 2015. All right, and it was, it was McCarroll that I was reading. He was making the ar- argument that the the historical conditions that gave rise to the Galaglass and why they were so 
sought after was because in Ireland, you have, in the 1100s, you have the Normans moving in. Dermot McMurrah, and there's other versions of that name that I've read, but he was a king of Leinster that was deposed. He went to England, which was at that time a Norman-controlled England, approached the throne and said, hey, I need some guys to help me out, and I'll give land to whoever comes and helps me get my throne back. And there you have the introduction of the Normans into Ireland. Now, the Normans fought different than the Irish, and this is the, the case that McCarroll makes. He says that the, the Irish, up until the Norman, the introduction of the Normans into Ireland, warfare in Ireland was pretty small scale. It was mostly raids, counter-raids between the different kin groups within Ireland or the different kingdoms, confederation of clans or kin groups. And so... You know, and, and if you get into their, their mythology and their folk tales and all that stuff, you can see how big the cattle raid is. You had the cattle raid of Cooley that forms one of the biggest Irish legends ever. And that's, that's who he makes the argument. is mostly that kind of stuff. It was, it was cattle raids. It was ambushes. It was, it was little stuff. And then the Normans come in on their horses with their cavalry and their chain mail and their... They're just a completely different approach to warfare. It was just all out with the Normans. And the Irish didn't really have a a native organic institution to confront that with. And so then you have the Galaglass showing up from Scotland, and that was their answer. Now, I don't know if I go along with that. I don't know. It, I haven't looked into it enough to come up with a really hard opinion on it. I'm just inclined to think, ah, I don't know, because you have the Viking Age. So the Normans come into Ireland only maybe a little more than 100 years after the Battle of Clontarf. So that's within at least folk memory of the ah, folk memory go back a lot farther than that. But the Battle of Clontarf was in 1014, and that was you know, confederated native Irish joined up with Scandinavians. Both the both sides were were a mix of the two backgrounds in there. People like to some some sources will paint that as a it was the Irish versus the Vikings and the Irish were under Brian Baru and they won. And the truth is that in my understanding of it anyway, is that there's there's Irish and Vikings on both sides. And during the whole Viking age, I mean Really, the, we, the, the Irish have never seen big armies that they've had to confront before? I don't know. I just don't know if I'm going along with the Irish were so small-scale in their approach to warfare that they could not. Now, I don't know that... I know that the upper echelons of the Irish society, they, they had cavalry. I don't know if it was on the level that the Normans liked to use it. One way or another... The Irish did not do well before the Norman advance. And so, and, and with this Norman advance into Ireland, then you have names such as Burke, such as Fitzgerald. These, uh, another one would be Butler. They become very powerful within Ireland, these Normans. They do really well at first. And so, in the 1200s, you do see the introduction of the Galaglass and a check on the Norman advance and the acquisition of territory in Ireland. So that all stuff is there. I just not, I'm just not, don't know how much on board I am with the fact that everything the Irish did was small scale and they didn't do any large scale. I don't, I don't know. They just, 
they'd had a, a lot of warfare before the Normans showed up with the Vikings. There are some big battles that happened there, and I just don't know that this is the first time they'd ever seen big armies. I don't know. Have not studied that out really in depth, yeah, and I'd like to. But that's anyway, that's my Carol's approach. And the Galaglass come from backgrounds where they have been in pitched battles. They do know all about that, and they're good at it. So there you have one person's take on it. Now, let me talk about things that were happening in Scotland that may have been a catalyst for a lot of these kindreds hiring themselves out to Irish lords, hiring their, their military service out to them. See, in, in, in Scotland, what was going on at this time, especially in the late 1200s, early 1300s, which is when you would see the Galaglass starting to ramp up, is the they had the, the contention for the different thrones. So if you've been following, you know, if you've seen Braveheart, if you've seen Outlaw King, these movies are set in the time period of this transition in Scotland with with the dynasties. And you see Robert the Bruce gain the upper hand and the throne of Scotland. Now you might also know that that was a contested thing. So we're talking about the late 1200s. Alexander the Third had died, and there are several different people who had a pretty decent claim to the throne. And you have Robert the Bruce being one of them. Now you have John Cummin, who was another claimant to the throne. And as far as I can tell, and the things that I've read, he was he had at least as good a claim to the throne as Robert Bruce did. And he had been more consistently pro or anti, I guess you could say anti-Edward, King Edward of England. Anyway, regardless, you had different people within Scotland and different clans taking different sides in the and backing different competitors for the throne. And so you have the McDougals, who are the leading clan descended from Summerlid, who was a famous warlord um, of mixed Gallic and Scandinavian descent in the 1100s. And he, anyway, I could go into more detail on him, and I, I've, I've mentioned before that I would like to do a whole episode just on Summerlid. But you have three main clans that are descended from Summerlid. You have the McDougals, the McRorys, and the McDonalds. The McDougals are the senior of those. They back John Cummin. Why? Well, the chief of the McDougals just happens to be brothers-in-law with John Cummin. So they back him, and in fact, they do represent this in Outlaw King, where Robert Bruce suffers a, a military defeat. He's on the run and then gets ambushed by a McDougal-led force, and he barely makes it out of that one. Well, and there were other clans that backed the, um, the little different, different other factions, not Robert the Bruce. And Robert the Bruce was was very vindictive. When he got his throne and became the king of Scotland, he remembered who sided with him, and he was very generous to them. And he also remembered who sided against him, and he went after them. And so you see the Cummins lose big. You see the McDougals lose big. Another clan that, that did not back Robert the Bruce were the McSweens. In fact, this Castle Sween on the west coast of Scotland is one of the oldest stone castles in Scotland. 
And I will go into more detail on these individual clans in the next episode. But the, the fact is these clans who did not back Robert the Bruce, they lose big. And that was a huge motivation for them to find greener pastures. So you find men from these surnames in great numbers moving down into Ireland, hiring themselves out to the local Irish chieftains and lords as mercenaries. Now, they're coming down. Let me talk a little bit about what they look like. So there's the, the historical context in Ireland, in Scotland, and some of the historical events that may have led up to and encouraged this movement with this Galaglass. So the Galaglass, let's talk about the, the armor that they had. McCarroll goes, he points out, and, and this is, I think this is fairly uncontroversial, that the Irish of the time, probably the upper echelons, looked a lot like other people in Europe. The chainmail was not unknown there, nor were helmets. But the, the Galaglass come down in there, and their typical kit was they'd had a padded jack underneath a male coat that would reach down to mid-calf. So it was a very long coat of mail. They had steel helmets of different types. A lot of them were conical in shape. And I, I haven't been able to see a lot of depictions of the Galaglass. And there's a lot of there's a lot of contemporary, especially from the 1500s, a lot of Englishmen, and we have their their actual firsthand I've seen Galaglass. This is what they look like. In fact, you had that that account that I read at the beginning of the episode from 1600 describing them. And I don't see a lot in any of this about shields, which would make sense because as I transition to talk about the weapons, you'll see why. Their weapons were usually big two-handed weapons. Now, we're either talking about a claymore of various shapes or a poleaxe uh, of a type a lot of the times referred to as a sparth axe, S-P-A-R-T-H, axe. And you can look that and do a Google Google image search on that. In fact, I would like to, on my Scottish Clans Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Clans of Scotland, I want to include links and visual resources for you so that you can, you can go to these resources and you can see what these... Because there's not only been contemporaries who drew them, and I'll include some both contemporary artwork, but also include some artwork from modern times that I think is probably pretty historically accurate. Uh, one art historical or uh, military history artist that comes to mind specifically is Angus McBride, who was, I believe he was English, but from Highland parents. Anyway, he is a, he has a, a vast work on military history. He is, he is uh, drawn or painted so many historical warriors from so many different lands and so many different time periods. And it's, I really enjoy his work. And so I'll probably include some of his stuff in there too. You can see what they had, but he had, so you can, you can see if you just do a Google image search, what a Sparth ax looks like. A lot of you are probably familiar with what a claymore looks like. Don't get too bogged down in specifically what was a claymore and what wasn't a claymore. A claymore, if I understand correctly, they, it, it was something that the Scots had, adopted from Germans with the Zweihande and made their own shape out of it. And the common shape among the Scots was this sword that the handguards were forward sloping. So they sloped 
instead of going just straight perpendicular to the line of the blade, they sloped slightly toward the point of the blade. And they'd have these three little rings, trefoils, on the, on the end of those handguards. That's the iconic claymore of the Scottish Highlands. But if you get in there, you'll see, you'll see them depicted both in contemporary drawings and in modern using swords of different shapes. All claymore means is big sword or great sword. So don't get too wrapped around the axle about the exact shape of it. It's a big sword. They swung big two-handed swords. They swung big two-handed axes, pole axes. And so that would leave not a lot of hands for the shield. Anyway, there you there you have kind of what the, the gallow glass was, how he was protected and how he was equipped with his weapons. They would come down into Ireland and they would hire out to these Irish lords and they were, they were so fierce and so steady and so aggressive on the battlefield that it became very prestigious to have a contingent of these mercenaries in your ranks. In fact, not only did the Irish chieftains and lords include them in their ranks when, they, when possible and when they could afford them, so did the Anglo-Norman men of power include them in their forces too. As they, as they saw how effective they were on a battlefield, they thought, well, two can play at this game. And if these guys are mercenaries, mercenaries don't have a reputation for being extremely picky about who they fight for. That's the, kind of the definition of a mercenary. They're fighting for hire, and if you can pay them a competitive wage, they're in. And so you see them on both sides. Anyway, it becomes very, very prestigious to have them in there. They are not cavalry. They are... Infantry. They are heavy infantry. Now, they would often be attended by native Irish kerns. Now, I, th- I believe this comes from the Gaelic or the Irish word cairn, and that's just, that's just a, f- a light-armed foot soldier. They were usually not head-to-toe in armor like the Galaglass were. They, they were. they used javelins. They were used for... Reconnaissance, they were used for skirmishing, pricking the enemy, ambushes, raids, things that happened quick. They could move in, hit the target, move off. Anyway, the Galaglass were usually had one or two of these kerns as attendants to help them bear their armor and any anyway, just to attend them in their needs. The which shows you where they are socially in the pecking order in of the troops on the battle, the Galaglass would occupy the higher echelon of the ranking out there. In fact, the Irish lords who were hiring the Galaglass, as the Galaglass became more and more established, you'd see them fulfill other roles aside from just guys on the battlefield. They would start becoming advisors and form personal bodyguards to the chieftains and Irish lords or Anglo-Norman lords, for that matter. So so they start, as they become more and more established, one of the ways that they became established was because it wasn't just money that they were fighting for, for pay. In fact, it was probably more common that they were rewarded with lands for their service. And this is how you start to see some of these surnames that are 
Scottish in origin, become established in Ireland. And one of the big ones that I'm referring to that is probably more commonly associated with Ireland than Scotland are the McSweenies, because they come down in there and they're known as the McSweenies or the Sweenies. And I'll go into more detail on that clan later on this in this next episode that I'll do. But the McSweenies or the McSweenies, they become established. They fight for the O'Donnells in Tyrconnell in what's now Donegal in Northern Ireland. They become well established up there in Donegal and, and have territory and lands. The McDonald's become established in in other parts of Ulster. But you see McSweenies or McSweenies, you see them as far south as Munster down in southwest Ireland. So it wasn't just Ulster that's very close to Scotland anyway that was receiving these Galaglass and having them settle there and become established. It was throughout Ireland. But I'd probably say that Ulster was, they were more common and prominent there. I've even seen a map of somebody who, he took a Google map and looked at where these surnames could be seen established throughout Ireland and kind of weeded out all the ones who would have come with the Ulster plantation of the of the 1600s. Anyway, and from that he deduces who were these. You see other surnames aside from Mc, in this effort that he did. Aside from McSweeney and McDonnell and McDougall, Mc, you you will I'll 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 hit on that in a second. You also see McCoy was one, McKee what were some of the other ones? I remember looking at this map. And and if I can, if I can think of it, I'll maybe include this, a link to this map in my in the show notes or in the in the notes on the Facebook page. So yeah, this this episode is probably gonna have a lot of resources that you can click on. So I hope you hopefully you, you enjoy that. So they get established. They they're given land for their service and they, it's just not, hey, you can live here. It's generations that settle there and work their way into Irish society. I think that that's the most of what I wanted to cover today. I, I, I'm so tempted to get into the different specific kindreds that formed these, these Galaglass groups, but I, I think I'm going to resist them, that temptation today. Um, I, will, I will mention this, just going back to their, the way they appear, their arms and their armor. I don't know if any of you have seen pictures or maybe have visited these locations in person where they have, in the Western Highlands and Isles, they have these stone effigies of famous warriors. You have one of the McLeod chieftains, chiefs, I think his name was Roderick, Rodri. Anyway, they're, they're all throughout. They're, very, they're fairly common. There's a, and I used these, these images as a primary source when I was writing my master's thesis comparing Highland clans and border clans between roughly 1300 and 1600, which happens to be the age of the Galaglass. Specifically, I was comparing the Highland and border clans in the realm of warfare during that time period. And so to, to go see contemporary sources of what the Highlanders were wearing for armor and what kind of weapons they were using during this time period, these, these stone effigies are actually a pretty valuable source. And, and I guess where I'm going with this is it makes it look like the, these Galaglass that show up in Ireland, they kind of just look a lot like the rest of the upper echelon where they were coming from. Meaning that, I don't know if there was a huge contrast, 
with their peers, excuse me, in, in Ireland, but it seems like they would have visually fit in very well with their peers back in Scotland. That, that higher echelon of warrior, people are higher up on the socioeconomic scale within the Western Highlands and Isles. It seems like this is just kind of what people were wearing and using in battle during that time period. Similar. I'm not necessarily saying it's exactly the same, but it, it, it does look really similar. So that's uh, that's I, I think that's what I, all I want to cover on this episode with the Gala Glass. I'm excited to get into the specific kindreds in the next episode. So let me just leave you with a few invitations as I wrap this episode up. I, by the way, I just want to say thank you again for joining me today. And and then if you could, if you if you have things to contribute, and I these these contributions that you listeners are making now, we're starting to pick up a little momentum with this. And I'm starting to see more on Facebook and people are commenting and they're saying, hey, I come from this group and I come from this clan and these are my ancestors. And hey, what about these guys? Or what do you think about this? And hey, you mentioned this, but you didn't mention this. And anyway, it's valuable. And I, and I really look forward to that. I've mentioned this before. I don't have a lot of, I kind of live out in the middle of nowhere and I'm kind of alone in this. I, I'm with kindred spirits on a lot of other areas and the other people that are out here where I live. We're pretty spread out, but nobody that I can really just dive into this subject with. And so I really get a lot of satisfaction out of those of you who have accepted my invitation to continue the discussion, to continue the dialogue, whether it's been on Facebook or whether it's been on the Podbean app. I just really appreciate it. So once again, Facebook is facebook.com forward slash clans of Scotland. That'll take you to the Scottish clans Facebook page. I will include a bunch of the resources I've mentioned in the show notes. Also, another way we can interact is on the Podbean app. So usually the link that I post in the Facebook page is a Podbean app link. So you can go there. You can go to podbean.com forward slash Scottish clans, I think is the, the URL for that. You can go just straight to if you're on a, if you're on a desktop computer. And if you want to listen to this on iTunes or Spotify, I'm on there too. And I'm working on Stitcher. And I let me know if there's another platform that is way common that I'm missing on getting this podcast onto. If you go on to in any of these platforms, there's a way to subscribe or to like it and to leave a review or comments. I know specifically with with iTunes, you can you can subscribe to this. You can subscribe on Podbean. Uh, I think Spotify, it's more just you like it, you press the heart button. All of them have the little share icon, and I think it's the same everywhere you go. The share icon, click on that. I'll bet you you know somebody that would get a kick out of some of these things that we've been talking about. If not this episode, you can reach back through the previous episodes and look at the titles. But I know you know somebody who is into this stuff, the Scottish history. So I encourage you to share this with somebody, to leave me a rating or a review, and continue the conversation with me on the before-mentioned sources. Thank you for joining me today, and until the next episode, have a, have a great time. Bye.